orgies, castration, murder, and the trial of a corpse. These are just a couple of examples of a period in history that some German historians once labeled the Papal Pornocracy. That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. On today's episode of the podcast, I want to return to a topic that I first discussed five years ago. Yeah, we, we've been doing the show a long time. And uh, it was in my very first episode of Footnoting History. It was our third episode ever, a special edition on papal resignations that I literally threw together in just a few hours following the surprise announcement of the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. While that episode focused on papal resignation, today I want to talk a little bit about papal election, and more particularly about one of the most tumultuous periods in the history of the papacy that stretched from the late 9th to the middle of the 11th centuries. Before the promulgation of the papal election decree by Pope Nicholas II in 1059, which said that popes would thenceforth be chosen by the College of Cardinals of the Catholic Church, there was no set method or system by which someone became pope. In fact, becoming a bishop was sometimes a messy process in general. Uh, bishops are an extra-biblical organization. They're not mentioned in the Bible, and the office itself is the product of the evolving needs for oversight within the early church. Bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means guardian or overseer. Uh, from the earliest days of bishops, the bishopric of Rome claimed to possess a special status over other bishops by virtue of the fact that the traditional first bishop of Rome was the Apostle Peter. Over the succeeding centuries, especially after the collapse of the western half of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, the bishopric of Rome began to slowly evolve into the institution that we know as the papacy. But as I said, becoming pope was not a regularized process. While many popes were elected by a small group of bishops or the clergy of the city of Rome, some popes were designated to office by their predecessors. Others became pope by popular acclaim, while still others were elected according to the wishes of kings, the Byzantine emperors in Constantinople, or, after 800, by the Holy Roman emperors. The lack of a consistent, universally recognized, and adhered to system meant that the papacy was frequently a contested position. If you didn't like the current occupant of the chair of St. Peter, or you wished that seat for yourself, chances are that you could claim irregularities in their election process as a justification for rebellion and installation of yourself, or someone that you preferred, as Pope. Further complicating this process was the fact that, over the centuries, the papacy was increasingly involved in secular affairs. Over time, popes had begun to exercise not just spiritual jurisdiction over the churches of Rome, but also temporal jurisdiction. Popes ruled over the lands around Rome, and the reach of their secular authority began to spread beyond the boundaries of Rome into the rest of central Italy, what would eventually become the Papal States. Popes were also increasingly asked to intervene in secular affairs outside of Rome, such as Pope Zachary's legitimation of Pepin the Short as King of the Franks in 751, authorizing his overthrow of the last of the Merovingian kings and the foundation of what would become the Carolingian dynasty. The combination of these factors, the unregularized nature of papal election and the secularization of the office of the papacy, meant that sometimes men became pope who weren't particularly pious, or that popes behaved in ways that we might find surprising. Take, for example, what happened to Pope Formosus, who was pope from 891 to 896. 
Before becoming Pope, Formosus had served as Bishop of Porto, just north of Rome, but he had also served as a missionary to the Bulgarians, for various reasons. Uh, he wound up on bad terms with then-Pope John VIII, who excommunicated Formosus for supposedly conspiring to overthrow him and then have himself made Pope. John VIII was himself eventually assassinated, and a decade or so later, Formosus was elected Pope. As Pope, Formosus was deeply involved in the Italian and Frankish politics of his day. To make a long, complicated story pretty short, uh, he crowned Guido III of Spoleto's son, Lambert, as co-Holy Roman Emperor with his father in 892, but he turned against Lambert and eventually crowned the Frankish king Arnulf of Carinthia as Holy Roman Emperor in place of Lambert. Uh, problem was, Lambert was still very much alive and did not appreciate the Pope attempting to essentially replace him as Holy Roman Emperor. After Formosus died in April of 896, he was succeeded by Boniface VI, who had twice been demoted for immoral conduct. Uh, Boniface lasted two weeks before dying of gout and was succeeded by Stephen VI. Stephen was very much a partisan of Lambert and his family, and in January of 897, ordered Formosus' body to be removed from its grave. Uh, the corpse was dressed in papal robes and sat on a chair in the papal court to answer for accusations of perjury and violation of canon law. At issue was whether or not Formosus was entitled to be pope in the first place, because he had not only been excommunicated and stripped of office by John VIII, but before becoming pope, he had been bishop of Porto, and according to the Council of Nicaea in 325, bishops were not allowed to abandon one diocese in order to administer another. So could a bishop... Um, from one diocese then be made Bishop of Rome. The Cadaver Synod, as this trial is commonly called, found Formosus guilty, had his garments torn off of him, had the three fingers of his right hand uh, cut off that had been used in benedictions and consecrations, and his body was thrown into the Tiber River. Now, it unfortunately washed up on the shore, and according to the people of Rome, began performing miracles, which then served to make both the people of Rome and the clergy of Rome rather upset with Stephen VI. By the end of the summer of 897, uh, just a few months after the uh, cadaver synod, Stephen was imprisoned, and then he was strangled to death. None of Stephen's immediate successors lasted very long in the papacy. Uh, Romanus was pope from August to November of 897, Theodore II lasted for just 20 days in December, though that was long enough to overturn the findings of the Cadaver Synod. John IX did last for two years before dying in 900, uh, and Benedict IV reigned for three years until 903. Then Leo V ruled for only a few weeks before being imprisoned by a rival claimant to the papacy named Christopher, who was himself overthrown by Sergius III, who had both Christopher and Leo strangled. With Sergius III, we enter a period of papal history that goes by a couple of different names. Uh, some subsequent historians of the papacy refer to this period as the Saeculum Obscurum, uh, literally the Dark Age, while in the 19th century, certain German historians called this the Pornocracy. The reason for this name lies in the fact that, beginning with Pope Sergius III, the papacy will closely ally itself with the Counts of Tusculum, an area near Rome, and more particularly with the female members of this family. The Count of Tusculum at this time was a guy named Theophylact, and so this family is usually called the Theophylacti. He and his wife Theodora were, as I said, uh, strong supporters of Sergius III, 
and they managed to leverage this support into positions of authority within Roman administration. Already a Roman senator, Theophylact will eventually become head of the city guard and be given fiscal responsibilities over the Roman churches. Chroniclers, one in particular, Lutprand of Cremona, have relatively little to say about Theophylact. Uh, they have a lot more to say about his wife, Theodora, and their daughters, Marozia and Theodora. Um, and I warn you, there's a lot of familial name repetition in the rest of this episode. According to Lutprand, Marozia was Sergius III's lover, and by him had an illegitimate child, the future Pope John XI. Marozia then married, after Sergius' death, the Margrave Alberic of Spoleto, and had a son with him, uncreatively named Alberic. The period of Theodora and Marozia's influence over the papacy is a source of great scandal for Lutprand. He writes, quote, A certain shameless strumpet called Theodora, grandmother of the Alberic who recently passed from this life, at one time was sole monarch of Rome, and, shame upon us even to say the words, exercised power in the most manly fashion. She had two daughters, Marozia and Theodora, and these damsels were not only her equals, but could even surpass her in the excesses that Venus loves. Uh, later on, he continues, Now the See of Ravenna, an archbishopric held only second in importance to the papacy of Rome, was then in Peter's hands. John of Ravenna, who afterwards became pope, was one of his church clergy, and frequently sent by him to Rome with official messages of due respect to his apostolic superior. Theodora, who, as I have declared, was a quite shameless harlot, saw the young man, and at once was all on fire with lust to possess him. So inflamed was she by his handsome person, that not only did she offer herself to him as his mistress, but forced him to comply with her desires again and again. While the shamelessness was going on, the Bishop of Bologna died, and John was elected in his place. Just before the day of his consecration, Peter, the Archbishop of Ravenna, passed away, and at Theodora's instigation, John abandoned his see at Bologna, and, filled with vaunting ambition, broke all the laws of the Holy Fathers and claimed the Archbishopric of Ravenna as his own. He therefore came to Rome and soon afterwards was ordained Bishop of Ravenna. Then a little time elapsed and God summoned the Pope who had illegally ordained him. Thereupon Theodora, with a harlot's wanton naughtiness, fearing that she would have few opportunities of going to bed with her sweetheart if he were separated from her by the two hundred miles that lie between Ravenna and Rome, forced him to abandon his archbishopric at Ravenna and take for himself a monstrous crime, the papacy of Rome. End quote. Uh, thus we come to the papacy of John X, supposed lover of Theodora, although it's a little unclear whether this is supposed to be the mother Theodora or the daughter Theodora. There were several intervening popes between Sergius III and John X, and supposedly these were candidates put forward or promoted by Theophylact and his wife. John X, though, will himself come to an end in part because of the Theophylact family, because Morozia and her second husband eventually imprison John X, either her mother or her sister's former lover, uh, and he will die uh, in prison or he is put to death at the order of Morozia uh, in 929, which one it is is kind of unclear. At this point, Morozia, who was, like her mother, accorded the title of Sinatrix, uh, so female senator, and she essentially will dominate the politics of Rome for most of the rest of her life. Several intervening popes had short reigns of only a few years, until John Eleventh, the alleged son of Morozia and Sergius III, was elected. 
Around this time, Marozia again remarried, this time to King Hugh of Arles, her second husband's half-brother. And if it sounds incestuous, that's because it technically was, um, and there were some canonical impediments. They had to have marriages annulled. Hugh had to get his marriage to his current wife annulled in order for him to marry Marozia. This marriage would, in fact, prove to be her downfall, as it alienated her from her son from her first marriage, Alberic, the half-brother of now Pope John XI. Again, Lutprand of Cremona has all the details. Quote, Now Marozia had a son named Alberic, whom she had borne to the Margrave Alberic. One day, when this youth was pouring out water at his mother's bidding for his stepfather, Hugh, to wash his hands, the king hit him in the face as a chastisement for not pouring the water in a modest and respectful fashion. Alberic determined to avenge this insult, and getting the Romans together, addressed to them the following harangue. The majesty of Rome has sunk to such depths of folly that now she obeys the order of prostitutes. Could there be anything viler or more disgraceful than the city of Rome should be brought to ruin by the impurities of one woman? This is his mother he's talking about. And that those who were once our slaves, the Burgundians, I mean, should now be masters. He means Hugh of Arles. If he hit me, his stepson, in the face when he had just come here as our guest, what do you suppose he will do to you when he has taken root in the city? End quote. Now, after hearing all this, the Romans rose up against Marozia and Hugh. Uh, they drove him from the city, and they imprisoned her in the castle San Angelo. At this point, Alberic and his half-brother, John XI, now ruled Rome. Although John would die only... Four years later, in 935, Alberic would preside over the city of Rome for the next two decades, closely controlling papal elections during that period. He also married his stepsister, Alda, the daughter of his mother's third husband, Hugh, the one that had hit him uh, and whom he had run out of Rome. And by Alda, Alberic will have a son, Octavian. So total was Alberic's control that on his deathbed, he made the Roman nobility swear that Octavian, his son and heir, would be the next pope. Alberic died in 954, and the next year, Octavian, who was a patrician and the ruler of Rome, was elected pope, taking the name John Twelfth. Now, John was somewhere in either his late teens or his early 20s when he became pope, in clear violation of ecclesiastical law that limited anointing as bishop to men over the age of 30. And frankly, if there were ever a case study for why canon law prohibited teenagers from becoming bishops, it was John Twelfth. His reign is usually referred to as one of the low points of papal history. In terms of his politics, John found himself caught in a fight for control of Italy between Berenger II, King of Italy, and his son Adalbert on one hand, and on the other, the German Otto I. John actively allied himself with Otto, even going so far as to crown Otto Holy Roman Emperor in 962 in thanks in exchange for defending the papacy against the predations of Beringer and Adalbert. In his personal life, though, John was derided by contemporary authors, again, notably, Lutprand of Cremona, who was actually a bit of a partisan in working for Otto. Lutprand calls him essentially a debauched, drunken sod uh, who let the church go into moral and physical ruin. Again, according to Lutprand, quote, Pope John hates the most sacred emperor, Otto, for exactly the same reason that the devil hates his creator. The emperor, as we have learned by experience, knows, works, and loves the things of God. He guards the affairs of the church and state with his sword, 
adorns them by his virtues, and purifies them by his laws. Pope John is the enemy of all these things. What we say is a tale well known to all. As witness to its truth, take the widow of Rainier, his own vassal, a woman with whom John has been so blindly in love that he has made her governor of many cities, and given to her the gold crosses and cups that are the sacred possessions of St. Peter himself. Witness also the case of Stefana, his father's mistress, who recently conceived a child by him and died of an effusion of blood. If all else were silent, the palace of the Lateran, that once sheltered saints and is now a harlot's brothel, will never forget his union with his father's wench, the sister of the other concubine Stefania. Witness again the absence of all women here save Romans. They fear to come and pray at the thresholds of the holy apostles, for they have heard how John a little time ago took women pilgrims by force to his bed, wives, widows, and virgins alike. Witness the churches of the holy apostles, whose roof lets the rain in upon the sacrosanct altar, and that not in drops, but in sheets. The woodwork fills us with alarm when we go there to ask for God's help. Death reigns within the building, and, though we have much to pray for, we are prevented from going there, and soon shall be forced to abandon God's house altogether. Witness the women he keeps, some of them fine ladies, who, as the poet says, are as thin as reeds by dieting, others everyday buxom winches." End quote. Now, given this behavior, just a year after having been crowned Holy Roman Emperor, Otto sought to depose John as Pope on the grounds of gross misconduct and replace him with his own candidate. Uh, the synod he called to do this also accused John of a whole other range of bad behaviors, including the aforementioned adultery, but also incestuous relations with his own niece, gambling, causing the death of several clerics by blinding or castration, cutting various body parts off of other people, uh, killing the husband of one of his lovers, and engaging in the canonically forbidden activities of hunting, wearing armor, and wielding weapons. John eventually summoned his own synod to invalidate Otto's anti-pope, and violence between the two camps threatened to break into all-out war when, perhaps fortuitously, John died in May of 964, allegedly killed by a jealous husband who had caught him in flagrante delecto with his wife. Throughout the rest of the 10th and into the 11th century, another Italian family, the Crescensi, would vie with the Tusculan counts for control of the papacy. This was not, however, the end of the Theophylact popes. John XII's cousin would become Pope Benedict VII in 974, and two of his nephews would also be popes, Benedict VIII, who became pope in 1012, and John XIX in 1024. In fact, John XIX was ruler of Rome while his brother, Benedict VIII, was pope, and upon his brother's death was immediately quickly ordained uh, and made pope. Then, upon his death in 1033, his nephew, John XII's great-nephew and the great-great-grandson of Marozia, ascended to the papal throne as Benedict IX. Now, like several of his predecessors, Benedict came to power through simony, the purchase of ecclesiastical office. In other words, bribery. And like his predecessors, his papal reign was marked by scandal. Sources disagree on his precise age, but he seems to have been somewhere between 14 and 20 when he was made pope. Uh, one particularly vicious source, Rudolf Glaber, says that he was only 10 at the time of his election, but this is likely hyperbole. Now, by all accounts, it seems that Benedict was himself not really all that interested in being pope. There were also certain Roman factions, like the Criscensi, uh, who had long since grown tired of Tusculan Theophylact rule. 
They also didn't want him to be Pope, and so soon Benedict was facing abortive assassination attempts. Benedict would also be accused of dabbling magic, in addition to all of the usual violence, rape, and sexual misconduct that had been the hallmarks of John XII's reign. Eventually, Benedict is forced to flee Rome in 1036, three years into his papacy. Uh, regardless, he managed to gather enough support to return to Rome, only to be driven out again in 1044, when the Romans elected their own Criscensi antipope, the Bishop of Sabina, Giovanni Criscensi, who took the name Sylvester III. Again, Benedict managed to gather enough outside support to return and retake Rome, but these accusations and buying the office of the papacy in the first place had proved very costly to Benedict, and it seems that he may have wanted to leave clerical life altogether in order to pursue marriage. So, the following year, now 1045, he arranged the sale of the office of the papacy to his godfather, Giovanni Graziani, who took the name Gregory VI. But then almost immediately, Benedict, for some reason, reneged on his sale and for a third time returned back to Rome to reclaim his papal throne. At this point, Giovanni Crescensi, stroke Sylvester III, uh, whom Benedict had sent back to his old job as Bishop of Sabina, reasserted his claim to the chair of St. Peter. So, just to be clear, at this point, we now have three men, Sylvester III, Benedict IX, and Gregory VI, all claiming to be the real pope. Eventually, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III was petitioned to deal with this issue, and he calls a council at Sutri, 30 miles north of Rome. The Council of Sutri did a couple of things. First, it stripped Sylvester, not just of his claim to the papacy, but of his bishopric as well, and consigned him to a monastery for the rest of his life. Uh, because they had purchased their papacies and were thus guilty of simony, both Benedict and Gregory were deposed as popes, and a new pope, Clement II, was elected. However, while Gregory and Sylvester had both attended Sutri, Benedict fled to his family lands in Tusculum, and so did not attend. And because he did not attend, he refused to recognize the actions of the Council of Sutri, or the status of Clement II as the true pope. In 1047, after Clement II's untimely death, modern autopsies have confirmed that he actually was poisoned with lead sugar, uh, Benedict retook Rome, again, only to be driven out, again, in 1048. At this point, we're not really sure what happens to Benedict. Uh, the author Peter Damien recounts a rumor that Benedict was transformed into a sort of monster, a half-bear, half-donkey, and he was consigned to roam the earth until the judgment of Christ. Uh, other sources more plausibly suggest that he may have entered a monastery as a penitent, but we don't actually know. And here we have one of the most fundamental problems with all of these fun stories. Are any of them actually true? I raise this as an issue because chroniclers like Luprand of Cremona have a very particular partisan axe to grind, and Luprand's chronicle is clearly set up uh, to make Otto out to be the good guy while the popes are clearly venial and unworthy of the office. This may be in no small part because Otto makes him Bishop of Cremona in 962. In the view of these chroniclers, what is most abhorrent about these popes isn't just their bad conduct and immoral behavior, but it's also that they come to power because of women exercising public authority and political power, something that Lutpran clearly believes should be the preserve of men alone. With that caveat, enough sources that are contemporary to this or written shortly after say sort of the same things about these popes, such that I think we can be fairly safe in assuming that there was indeed a fair bit of truth to these stories, if not strictly in detail, then 
definitely in essence. Whatever the fate of Benedict IX, it had become manifestly clear that the institution of the papacy needed massive reform. Even after Benedict's deposition, the Counts of Tusculum would continue to play a role in papal elections, though they increasingly came up against the forces of the Criscensi in efforts to control the papacy. The veniality of the Theophylact popes also helped precipitate reform of the papal election process. And so it was that in the spring of 1059, Pope Nicholas II held a synod of 113 bishops at the Lateran Palace in Rome, which promulgated a new papal election decree, holding that from now on, only cardinals, the senior officials of the Catholic Church, would be permitted to elect new popes in a conclave held in Rome. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.